Good morning, everyone. I hope you all had a good week, and it's great to see you all here this Sunday morning, but I just would like to pray briefly before we get into things. Uh, Lord, I just confess that I need you. Um, I need you to speak through me. I need you to give me patience and clarity as I speak, Lord, and I just pray that you would be at work in me in that, Lord. I pray that your word will be just made known again throughout all of Galway and all of Ireland and that um, there be a, a spiritual renewal, Lord, in, in the country and in the world. Um, I pray for everyone here, Lord, that your spirit would apply these words to us, that we wouldn't just kind of zone out or think of our own understandings of this story, Lord, that I think a lot of people know pretty well but just that the truth of the story, the truth of what you've done, the message you want to communicate within it, Lord, that you would apply that to all of our hearts today and would give us obedient hearts to live it and apply it, Lord. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we just heard most of the story of Noah and the ark. And you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who isn't at least the least bit familiar with that story. I think everyone kind of has a good general idea of it anyway, provided it's not the really bad Russell Crowe adaptation of it. Um, so with all that in mind, let's get a little bit more intimately acquainted with the text. So starting with its main themes. So the main themes kind of are, we have a righteous man, a fallen world, we have judgment on that fallen world, then we have an instrument for salvation. And we have or an instruction for an instrument of salvation, sorry. Then we have a means of salvation. And then we have people being saved in the midst of judgment. Now, listening to that, a lot of these themes and ideas might sound eerily familiar, judgment, righteousness, salvation, and so on. And we'll get to that familiarity a little bit later on. But just before I get into things, this story spans three chapters in the Bible, and each of them have a great deal of detail in terms of the measurements for the ark, Noah's time in the ark, and other facts and figures. So I just want to inform you that it's um, due to time constraints, I'll be focusing on the main beats of the narrative, so those main themes, and briefly touching on the minor details of the, the story. So we start off with Noah, and we're told that Noah was righteous and blameless in his generation and that he walked with God. So it's important we remember that what Jason said last week, and that Noah himself was set apart by God, but he was a sinner like the rest of the world, so he wasn't, he himself wasn't inherently good, and that he received undeserved kindness from God, and from that, God leads him to carry out his acts of righteousness. So in the text, we're not exactly told how he is righteous, but later revelation sheds a little bit of light on, on what his life was like and how he was righteous. So in Hebrews 11:7, we are told that by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So he had faith in God. And in 2 Peter 2, we see that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So Noah's faith and his preaching were very clear expressions of how Noah was righteous and how he walked with God. It wasn't like he was just 
a nice guy. He was active in his walking with God. So when we get into the fallen world in which Noah lived, we are told it was corrupt and defiled in God's sight and filled with violence. The text makes it perfectly clear that it was man, it was us, people, and our sin who corrupted the earth. In terms of what this corruption looked like, I think Jason's sermon last week really painted that picture in the Nephilim and sons of God, daughters of men. Things were not, were not good at all. But Jesus himself talks a little bit more about what this pre-flood world would have looked like and what the people's attitude were. So in Matthew 24, Jesus says, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So it's safe to assume that this was a society that had no regard for God or Noah, his preacher, and was quite happy to live lives of licentiousness and debauchery. With this world living lives affront to God, wrecking his creation, God sets out to make an end of all flesh and to destroy them upon the earth. And it's important to note that God's wrath is on man, it's on people and his sin, but not necessarily on the earth itself. So he will, God intends to use the earth to destroy all of us, but in the process, creation and the created order will suffer because of that. So with this intention say, God warns and commissions Noah to build an ark, as we all know. Now it seems very clear from the instructions that God gives Noah that this ark is not merely for him, but there's other intentions in mind for this ark. I mean, it's quite big, big a little too big for seven people. So God tells Noah that he will enter the ark along with his wife, his sons, and their wives also. And it's important to note that the text doesn't talk about Noah's family either, apart from their connection to him. So it, it doesn't say that they were a family of righteous people going out preaching, just merely that they were his, his, his wife, his sons, and their wives. God also commands Noah that he is to take two of every kind of animal onto the ark, one male and one female. He is also told to bring every creeping thing of the ground and every sort of food, uh, food source too. So these commands show that God isn't just throwing a tantrum and saying, and you know, throwing the toys out of the, the toy pit. He's not seeking to just destroy and wipe the earth for destruction's sake. He's enacting judgment on man and wiping him off the earth and intending to restart creation fresh with Noah as his new Adam, Noah at the head of this new created order. So in verse 22 of chapter 6, it reads, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Which just, what amazing faith Noah had to act on what God told him to be told that the world is going to be flooded and that you're going to build. An I mean, it's quite a heavy thing to receive and an even heavier one to act on. I'm not sure a lot of us would in, in his situation. He firstly doesn't question God and his existence. He doesn't, you know, question the revelation that he receives or question God or question that this is even going to happen. 
And he doesn't question the morality of God and what he's going to do. He doesn't say, that seems a little much. I've got some friends here that I would like to hold on to. He obeys all that God commanded him without any hiccups. So chapter 7 opens with the Lord speaking directly to Noah, telling him and his family to enter the ark, and that God has seen or has acknowledged the work that Noah has done, Noah's righteousness before him. So this is actually a little part of the text in chapter 7 that we didn't quite read, but I wanted to bring it up anyway because it was a source of confusion for me when I was reading through it. So in chapter 7, verse 2, um, God says, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, a male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are unclean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, a male and his mate, to keep the offspring alive on the face of the earth. So initially reading that, I was like, I was very, very confused as to how many animals Noah was taking, what was he taking, um, what was like, what was the actual command, what was Noah asked to do. So Noah was instructed to take seven pairs of clean animals, like we read, the male and his mate, and a pair of unclean animals, the male and his mate. So initially reading this, I was like, did God change his original command? He said only take two of each kind, <clears throat> male and his mate. But now he's saying Taking, take seven pairs. So no, God didn't change his original command. Noah is still doing the very thing that he was commanded to do. But God just went into greater specifics on what that would look like. So Noah is still taking two of every kind for the continuation of each species. But he's also taking seven pairs of clean animals and one pair of unclean, some for food and others for sacrificial purposes. So again, I, I was really confused numerically. I was like, how many animals is Noah taking? Um, and it's also important, another source of confusion with this story is the term kind. Like, what was Noah actually taking? Was he taking seven zebras, seven horses, seven cows? What, was, what, what did God define by kind? So Noah wasn't, the term kind here doesn't mean breed. He wasn't taking every breed of animal. He was taking every kind of animal. So Noah didn't take seven zebras and seven horses, like I thought he might have, um, because they are of the same kind. He would have just taken seven of the horse kind of animals. Same with the birds, seven pairs of male and seven pairs, sorry, seven, per, seven pairs of male and female, I beg your pardon. For God will send rain on the earth, and in 40 days and 40 nights, every living thing that he has made will blot, be blot out from the face of the ground. So again, we also see another clear example of Noah's obedience, and I think this is something that's really highlighted here. And Noah did all that God has commanded him. So again, Noah is constantly being obedient during all of this, constantly obeying, constantly following these commands. So Noah was 600 years old when the floods of water came upon the earth. So God and Moses, and this is kind of in that, in, within chapter 7. So I'll just briefly touch back over that. So God and Moses, in recounting this event, are really committed to grounding it in reality, even giving us the exact day that Noah and his family entered the ark. So that is the second month and the 17th day of the month. 
So that was when the flood, the flood starts, the second day on the 17th. So again, just really grounding this in reality. This wasn't just some folk tale. There's real clear evidence and detail given to, to, to this flood. Another thing to know is that it is God who leads Noah and the animals into the ark. Again, it's God that commands Noah to get into the ark in the first place. And in verse 16, it's God who shuts Noah in. So now the flood starts. So Noah is in the ark, and if they were faithfully adapting this narrative to the big screen, this is where the big, heavy, dun-dun, dramatic music would start overtoning the whole scene. And it rained, and it rained, and it rained so much that the amount of water was so vast that it covered all the mountains under, the earth, under heaven. And like, we think it's, it's wet here, and it's wet now, raining constantly. But can you imagine what that must have been like for the people outside the ark? On Thursday, I was running in Salt Hill, and the wind was really strong, and it was really difficult to, to run in, and the tide was so high, and the waves were just crashing and crashing against the, against the rocks. And I thought that was really a rough, a rough day, just the power of nature in that one, one evening. But that was, that, I thought that was pretty rough, but that pales in comparison to the level of force and power that God was using to flood the whole earth. The people probably thought that it was just a shower that will eventually stop and in a couple of days, the sun will come out again. But it didn't. It kept going and going and going. And the tide was rising and rising and rising. Minor floods turning into major ones. Judgment was upon them, and their time had run out. Everything died. God's justice was enacted on the whole earth. And all that was left was Noah and his ark just moving and sailing through. So the water remained on the earth 150 days. So chapter 8, we see, within chapter 8, um, we see God remembering Noah, and he generates a wind that blows the whole earth clean, that causes the water to eventually subside. And in the seventh month of the 17th day, the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Arad. So the remains of the flood continued to dissipate, and within three months, the tops of the mountains could be seen. The fact that Moses tells us the exact day in which the water started to abate and the mountains could be seen, again, shows the enormity of this flood, of how much water, of how catastrophic this, this was. And again, that it's also very much grounded in history, that it's not just some fairy tale recount of Noah and his life. And there's actually also multiple other cultural stories and accounts throughout different societies that account to a flood of this scale, so like the legend of Gilgamesh or a couple of other things. Each civilization has their own flood story. So now that the waters have cleared, 
Noah sends out birds, again, this is within chapter 8, to detect whether the land is dry or not. And upon finding dry land, Noah and his family obey God's commandment and release the animals from the ark, and a fresh start for the earth can begin again. So, so what's interesting here is that so Noah gets off the ark, everything starts perfect, but the first thing Noah does is that he builds an altar, and upon that altar he offers up burnt offerings. And then God, knowing man's condition and brokenness, promises to never flood the earth again and to maintain order in its progression. So keeping the seasons and keeping the day and night cycle and maintaining a sense of normalcy within the created order and structure. So there's a couple of things that I noted from this kind of conclusion of the story in that Noah's faith is, again, profound, that he's consistently obedient and consistently faithful, but that immediately after getting off the ark, he prioritizes God. He puts God first. So the first thing he does is that he builds an, ark. He builds an altar to praise, to praise God. He doesn't build a house. He's not like, okay, let's get things going again. We've got to get a house and get some food or organize the animals out and try and work his way through um, this new creation, what's it going to look like, what's he going to do, or even prepare a meal of thanksgiving for his family. He's like, isn't this great? We survived this great calamity. Okay, let's, let's eat food. He seeks to praise the God who saved him, who showed grace upon him and his family, who showed mercy on him amidst a world of violence and darkness. He doesn't say to God, okay, that's great, you've saved me, um, perfect, but now I've got my own life to deal with, with my wife, our children, our homes, we have like a, a whole created order, a world that we need to try and fix. And he doesn't just push God to the sidelines immediately after he's saved, he's, the first thing he does is he puts God first. He also praises God for the judgment of sin and him being spared from it. He isn't, you know, kind of distant from God, immediately getting off, getting off the ark and a little bit trepidatious around him. He immediately makes that altar and praises him again. So kind of from that, I ask you, do you put God first in the regular every day of your life, getting up for work or going to school or just kind of the regular everyday occurrences of life? But more importantly, when life throws things your way, big changes your way, curves your way, as it did very much so Noah. He had to start a whole new world. Do we put God first in that? Or do we kind of drag our heels and question, why, what are you doing? Why am I here? What's, do we build our own altars to praise God in, in that? Um, do you reflect on God's judgment on sin as a positive thing, as a victorious thing even, him, God, writing our wrongs? Or do you see it as him being hired on people? It's definitely something to think about. And again, we also see Noah's faithfulness in that he offers God the good pairs of birds and animals, uh, not the bad ones. So I'll just reread over that again, the building of Noah's altar. So then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal 
and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the Lord. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his, uh, in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So again, Noah, he offers God his best. He offers God the best that he has. Which, and he learns from what Jason preached on Cain and Abel, Cain's fault, kind of that sermon that we covered, of giving God kind of, not the best, not the worst, just kind of, okay, here, you can take that, and I'm sure you'll be happy with that. Which leads to just another rhetorical question that I felt um, reading that. Like, do I offer God the best in my own life, the best that I can do, or do I just settle for what's enough in, I don't know, maybe it's in my prayer life or in reading the Bible? Do I get stuck into a rut of just superficially praying, Lord, help me get through my day, and then that's it? Or do I earnestly almost try and engage like a spiritual gland, penal gland in my brain to actually focus on what I'm praying or focus on what I'm reading? Do I try and give God the very best of me? in those times. So those were just a few things that jumped out at me when wrapping up this text. So we've covered the story of Noah and the ark, and I tried to go in as much detail as I could. It's, it is quite a long um, story. But it is a very rich event in history. I would encourage you all to study it in its details and um, in all of its intricacies. Because <clears throat> there is so much in the building of the ark and Noah's time there <clears throat> that can be extracted later on and is played out kind of in later, in later narratives within the Bible. But to get back to those themes that I brought up earlier um, that may have seemed familiar to all of us and such as a righteous man or judgment on the earth, sinful mankind, a means of salvation. Ideas we get, we hear and think about very, very often. I bring them up because these themes and ideas in our church context and in general are always attributed to Jesus constantly. Jesus is a righteous savior. We are in, need, we are in judgment. These kind of ideas are always attributed to Jesus. And yet the same bones and same structure can be found in Noah, the ark, and the pre-flood world. And I just think that's really, really interesting that these narrative beats can be found within both stories. So that's not to say that the stories and the parallels within them are like one-to-one reenactments, because that is certainly by no means true. Noah and Jesus are certainly not cut from the same cloth by any means. But the point still stands that these stories are very similar. So much so that I believe that Noah and the ark is a picture and a reflection even of Jesus Christ and the gospel. So let's um, work through that. So firstly, we have a fallen world. The world of Noah was certainly very fallen. I was no short of sin and depraved people living in it and doing all sorts of crazy things within. But so is ours. So is ours. 
And are we really that much better? Are we that much more enlightened than the people of this world? More morally acute? Do we think that we're of a higher intelligence, of a higher standard? I, I don't think so. I, 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 don't think, I don't think we are. Because we as a people are still very quick to anger and are still quick to think ill of people and are very and even more quick to turn our backs on God and his own teaching when it suits. So like not giving him our best or, or when things don't go the right way in our own lives, when the structure is broken and life hits a curveball, we kind of tend to shake our fists a little bit. And I know that because that's the case within me. I know I do. And I'm a Christian. That's not the way we should be, but it's the way I am, and I'm sure it's the way some of you are too. I'm still broken. I'm still rebellious. Still in need of saving and still in need of grace from the people around me and most importantly from God above. And I think it's if I think everyone here would, would agree that they are all the same. So when we look at the world as a whole and the morals that it teaches and the things that the world deems righteous and good and of a, of a higher level, of a higher standard, the things it tries to force on us, whether it be in schools, in our jobs, everywhere really, these ideas and morals that are very clearly a front to God and God's ideal and God's commands and God's teaching, we can see that as a whole society, we are definitely no better. Maybe we're not raving around killing each other like it might have been back then, but we are still very much living lives a front to God. And whenever we try to bring his word into things or try and bring his law in, the world shakes his fist and says, no, we're happy. I think, therefore I am. I know what's best for me. So individually, as people, we are no better because we all sin, and as a result, collectively, as a whole society, as a whole civilization, we're still not much better than these people were back then. So now we look at the righteous men of these stories. And again, to preface, I'm not saying that Noah and Jesus are of the same stature, but just for the sake of comparing the two narratives that we have, they occupy the same function. So Noah, the one righteous before God, and who preached to the people of the pre-flood world of the coming judgment, the one whom God had chosen and led to reset the earth with, but ultimately Noah still sinned. Noah fell short of God's glory. Noah wasn't enough. Just as you and I are not enough. We needed someone more. Someone better. Someone whole. So now we have Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The one who is without sin. The one with whom God is well pleased who preached about the coming kingdom of heaven and taught the people of Jerusalem of repentance and of faith in God. And just what a blessing his ministry is and his being is. 
But then we have the outline of a means of salvation. So for the case of Noah, it's God instructing him to build the ark and the details he gave and the measurements he gave and the, the plan that God had in constructing this ark. In the case of the gospel, it is the cross and the entire Old Testament. So Noah was given, again, a set of instructions to follow uh, and details to build this ark in order to facilitate God's plan for the renewal and for the judgment of the world. But in the same way, Jesus had the entire law and the prophets as his blueprint. Jesus followed every prophecy, every law, every idea that was found in the Old Testament. From his virgin birth, from being from the royal line of David, to things he didn't even have control over of, like his very death without breaking bones. Jesus is the perfect righteous one that we were waiting for and looking for. We then have the actual means of salvation itself. So in the case of Noah and the ark, it's Noah's ark. And for Noah, it was a way in which he would physically pass through the judgment of God safely. But in the case of the gospel, it's a little bit different. It's more advanced in that the cross is the ultimate, is the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate way in which we pass through God's judgment spiritually in ourselves and in our, our spirits in that we are made right with God but also physically, in that we overcome death itself. But it is also where God's own judgment is found, in that God the Father's wrath is poured out on Christ the Son in that cross, in that moment. So when we repent and when we put our trust in Jesus, what we're doing when we do that is that we submit, um, we submit and we admit that we are deserving of judgment, we recognize the judgment in front of us, but that Jesus bears it for us all. So he takes, so he takes our judgment and we pass through the wrath as Noah did when we are in him. So then we have the people who are being saved. So who are these people? Who are, what's the connection here? Well, for Noah, it is himself, his wife, his sons, and their wives. But in the case of the gospel, <clears throat> it is anyone who believes in Jesus. So again, what is the connection between these two? In the text, as I said before, there does not seem to be any reference to the righteousness attributed to, to them and Noah seems to be the sole source of goodness from his family. It seems that they are only saved because of their connection to Noah, and not anything they themselves have done. And that would be the same, presumably, that would be the same for anyone that would have listened to Noah and would have followed him. It was Noah that was commissioned to build the ark, so anyone that would have believed would have joined him. And so it is the same in the gospel, that Christ, Jesus Christ, is the only source of righteousness too. And it's nothing that we do. And that the people who believe in him, who respond to him, who listen to him, 
are saved and are free from their sins. But we ultimately don't contribute at all to our salvation. It's Christ all, all the way through. Even the very faith that we have is a gift of grace, like it was for Noah. And that we are only saved because of our connection to Jesus. So why do I bring all of this up in relation to Noah and the flood? Well, I think we can very clearly see the parallels between these two stories, that they're, they're very clear and apparent. And I bring this up because Noah's story is really just a picture of what the gospel is, a foreshadowing of what the gospel is, if you will. And foreshadowing, it's a narrative technique that hints at, some, that hints at something and that will be revealed to a much greater extent later on in the story. So, for example, um, one that came to my mind was in Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, there is a cryptic scene when Luke is training with Yoda, and he has to fight an illusion of Vader, uh, the bad guy. But when Luke strikes him, and his head, his, uh, Vader is there, uh, apparition's head comes off, and it's revealed that it's Luke's own face under the helmet, and I, that scene when I was younger used to really freak me out. And it was really strange, and it didn't really fit well with the whole context of him training. But what this scene was doing is it was foreshadowing the reveal that Vader was Luke's father and that they were connected. So when you go back and you rewatch that scene, you don't look at it all confusingly saying, that was a really weird scene. You can look back and see what was being done there and how things were being set up that were paid off later. So when you look back on what was set up, it makes that strange scene, that strange scene makes sense due to the later light of, of what happens in the story. Well, this technique of foreshadowing, it isn't just exclusive to the world of movies and novels or other kinds of entertainment mediums. It's prevalently found within the sacred word of God. I would venture to say that God is the master of this tactic. He's the originator of it. And that the whole Bible is riddled and filled with this amazing kind of writing style and literature and foreshadowing. When we examine the Old Testament and we examine the whole Bible through the eyes and through the context that it was later brought through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, it is really beautiful to see, and there's so many connections and so many things that are set up that are ultimately ful fulfilled in Jesus. It's like an, an artistic masterpiece that the, Bible, that the Bible is. And the magnum opus there, God's premier work is the cross. So with all that in mind, I, Noah and the Ark is a picture that is really and truly fully realized in the gospel and in Jesus. But there is an old saying of Winston Churchill that says that those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. So I say to you here today, learn from the mistakes of these people of the past, these people of this old world. See the ark that God has provided you. See Jesus, see the cross, repent of your sins, recognize that, and seek forgiveness. 
It's there freely and gracefully. Or perish and be wiped out as did and, as did and will everybody else who denies God and his gospel and his son, his lamb. But we must also follow, follow Noah's example of obedience and his steadfastness in our own lives today. We must obey all that is within God's own word. We must study it and make it known. Um, we must study it, know it, live it, breathe it, be in it all, at all times. See the beauty that is within and that it's not merely just a religious text that as Christians it's good advice that we should learn and that we have to. It's, it's quite beautiful when we really examine it. And pray that God in his spirit would make those beautiful images and those beautiful connections apply in our own hearts and minds because within ourselves, we can't see them. But most importantly of all, we need to preach this, we need to preach this gospel, not just for pastors or for the religious people, but all of us need to make known the ark that God has freely given freely, lovingly, and gracefully provided and given us in the wake of this coming judgment as Noah did and as we are commanded. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your word in general. There how rich it is, and I just pray that your spirit would lead us to study it and examine it, and not in just a way for head knowledge, but for true spiritual growth and, and joy that we would delight in your word, Lord. I pray that your spirit would convict us in our own sin and in our own rebellious nature, and that it would lead us to preach and to make known the grace that's been given to us, Lord, to everyone we work with, to everyone we go to school with, to our neighbors, our friends, to everyone, that your spirit, that a bold spirit would embolden us to deal with objections to the, to, to the gospel, but to strengthen us to make it known to all people that a fear of man would not impede us, Lord, but that we would recognize and just see the grace and beauty that is within and joyously spread it, Lord. Um, again, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.